Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. And if you wouldn't mind just giving our listeners a little bit of background on who you are and what you've been up to. Yeah. So my life has taken an odd series of trajectories. The through line has been what is real. And when I was Back in grade school and in high school, I noticed that really what we think of as like our our real religion for this culture is science, and that it describes to us what is real. The priesthood of science is physics. And so I thought, well, I'll go to them and they can tell me what is real. <laughs> and I was I was really excited about physics too. And then in high school, I had also gotten interested in human emotion by watching the high school plays. I would go to the play three nights in a row, which was all we did in high school. And I would watch and I would think, these people are having emotions that I don't have. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And I was beginning to suspect that I was, uh, that my, my childhood and my teenage years had not been so optimal and I was a little bit constricted. So it came time to go to college and my parents were much in favor of the physics route. You know, like you could earn a living, Stephen. So, so I had managed to get into MIT and I, I went there to study physics and I, I stayed there a year. I only really studied the classical science stuff for the first semester because I started to notice a couple of things. One was I would go to my teachers and say, you know, like, what is real and how do you know? And, you know, is there a God? And where did we come from? And what is the purpose of life? And they would say, Stephen, you cannot answer these questions in science. This is not about physics. This is about metaphysics. You got to go to metaphysics for these answers. And I also noticed that many of my classmates there at MIT were not only kind of emotionally constricted and a little bit damaged like myself, but maybe a lot more so. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if I stay here, I'm not really going to heal. Yeah. So my second love was theater. And I thought, you know, when I get to play a character... I get to try out being a different person, and I learn about people, and maybe that'll be good for me. Maybe that'll help me heal. It never occurred to me to go get psychotherapy. I was a well-brought-up young man on the East Coast, and therapy was for crazy people. Can't do that. Hmm. So I did manage, during the second half of my freshman year, to get admitted to the theater school at Boston University. So that next September, I started there. Did four years in theater school, and then four years in a repertory theater, playing lots of different parts, exploring lots of different people. And one thing I discovered was every single person is doing the best they can. Everyone thinks, even if they're a murderer, a rapist, a terrible person, they think this is the best choice in the moment. 
And that had a tremendous effect on me because I'd been pretty judgmental before then. And it opened me up to the idea that even though I don't like their behavior and I don't want anybody doing that, they think it's a good idea. They feel compelled. I'm just curious how you were able to really internalize that. Because it's it's one thing to kind of have this idea that like we're all doing the best we can. But it sounds like that went from idea to embodied knowing for you. And I'm curious if you can. Yes. And thank you for using the term embodied knowing. I have come to the belief that embodying knowledge is the point. Just knowing it in your head is nice, but it doesn't change much. And I completely agree with you. To just have an idea of, oh, yeah, I believe everyone's doing the best they can. And I still judge the hell out of them. You you didn't really get it yet. (laughs) When When I was playing different characters, I had to go inside the character and I had to find out why in this moment does this person believe that this action is the thing they need to be doing? And I had to, I had to give up. This happens when you play a character. You have to give up standing outside and judging them. You have to go inside them and, in a way, take them into your heart and use your heart it, it, to be in their place. And it brings a kind of understanding that's really profound. Mm. That makes so much sense. You know, I recommend it as a way to explore. One of the things young people want to do, of course, is try out, you know, being different people. You know, if you go to a new school, you have an opportunity to reinvent yourself. And that's good as far as it goes. But if you're doing a play live on stage, you got a whole lot of help. You know, you have scenery designers and lighting and other actors and costumers. And, you know, there's this whole group project to create this other reality that you are part of, and you get to find out why does this person behave this way? I found it to be terrific. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that, because I think that's part of why acting is so hard, is because I think that true, I mean, really what you're describing is empathy, like really deeply embodying someone else's experience is, is hard for a lot of, a lot of us. It is. And part of the training in acting school was to not just theoretically get inside the other, the character, but physically and physiologically. I mean, like in acting class, one of the simple little exercises was, okay, go out on the street, find somebody interesting, follow them down the street, don't be obvious about it, but get in your body what they're doing, how they're behaving. If they walk with a limp, get that limp into your body. If they're bent over, if their shoulders are out of alignment, if their head is cocked to one side, get that into your body, bring it back and show us. And I learned from the acting classes about doing that in the body, not in my head. And I was very much centered in my head when I started acting school. And I, you know, they did their best and I'm, I was still too much in my head. I did sort of try to think my way through acting school, which was not very successful. <laughs> That's funny. I'm just laughing because I, 
I used to do acting in a former life. And yeah, that was my challenge with acting as well was getting out of my head. It was hard for me at that time and still can be certainly. But But it's good training in getting out of your head because to really be in the scene, in the moment, in the character, you have to not be in your head. You have to be in your body and in your heart, in your belly and what's going on for them. So I got to be about 26, 28, something, and I had done four years in the rep company, and my passion for acting had burned out. My emotional life had opened up again, so I had accomplished that part. That was great. And having accomplished that, I began to realize, I'm kind of done here. So I left the company. I I bought an old bread truck from a bread <laughs> company. I built it into a motor home, and I drove across country and back by myself, wow. which kind of turned into a vision quest before I even knew that term. <laughs> so then I got back to Northern Virginia, where I'd grown up, where my parents still live, you know, went back to see my parents, and began looking around at what am I going to do next. And I kind of gradually wandered into metaphysics and into parapsychology, and then decided to come out to, here to California to go to John F. Kennedy School because they had a a transpersonal psychology program, one of the very few in the country at the time. So that's kind of how I came into doing psychotherapy. And then I started studying the Enneagram with Helen Palmer, did her first teacher training. The Enneagram was my first uh, map of personality. And it really opened up for me the idea of, oh my God, other people really do experience the world differently than I do. And it's legitimate. It's not just that they're stupid or they're wrong or there's something wrong with them or there's something wrong with me or it's, it's legitimate. It's real. That was the big takeaway for me. And I became a real student of the Enneagram for 20 years. After Helen, I was in the Diamond Heart School, meditation school. Great training in psycho-spiritual work. Great training in disidentifying from your inner critic. And then I began studying energy itself, working directly with energy, with a teacher here in Berkeley. And that's when I encountered the character structure map. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What is a character structure map? Yeah, so it is a map of personality. It's different from the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs maps in that they tell you you are a type, birth to death, end of story, and that that is, in, in a certain way, who you are. The character structure map is quite different in that it doesn't say this is who you are. It says this is a safety strategy you use, which takes you away from who you are. Who you are is your essence, is your presence. But when we're little kids, you know, we get scared, we get upset, we get dysregulated, like everybody, and we try out different ways to feel safer. And fundamentally, and I've, I've done some research on this and I've been, become convinced of it. Fundamentally, there are only five things you can do to feel safer. And the five things are move your attention and your life energy away 
from the other person or the situation that's scaring you. Move it towards them to try to get them to help you. This is what a baby is doing when it cries out, says, come and help me. You know, fix me, feed me, change me, whatever I need. You can pull your life energy and your attention in and send it down in the ground to hide. Kind of let it blow over, just endure the situation. You can pull your life energy up in your body and try to get as big and strong and scary and intimidating as possible and send it out at other people to try to command them and intimidate them and control them and basically get them to do what you want. Coerce them into their into complying with you. So that's a fighting strategy, a dominating strategy. That's number four. Number five is you can constrict the muscles down the torso of your body to try to constrict the, the flow of life energy through your body, which will turn down the volume inside of your distress. It's like turning down the volume knob on your radio. You know, the music is still playing, but it's not as loud. So in rigid pattern, you turn down the volume and you move your attention away from actually feeling the inside of yourself and you move your attention to the surface and to your behavior so that your attention goes to your performance. Am I being a good boy? Am I being a good girl? Am I doing it the right way? Not how do I feel about it? I'm curious to hear your perspective, and this is perhaps an unanswerable question, but on how people end up falling into or choosing, or I don't even know what language you would use, these patterns. Yeah, I don't know how much is sort of inborn and how much is a response to the environment. I suspect both those things are important. I have heard a number of parents say that they literally watched their children try out each of the five strategies and they could see that you know it a strategy worked what you know particular strategies worked and particular strategies just did not work and whether it works or not for you depends on a couple of things one is do you have kind of the natural talents to make this work to make the aggressive pattern work the, the aggressive strategy to to be able to pull up a big strong bunch of energy and then throw it at people to, you know, force them to do what you want. It only works if you can pull up a lot of energy. If you don't naturally have a big, strong flow of energy in your body, you try to pull it up and you throw a little softball at them and they go, hey, come on, (laughs) give me a break here. You know, I nice try, I don't buy it. So you have to have the natural talents or capacities needed to pull this one off. Secondly, it has to work in your situation. If you're trying to be, you know, the big strong one and dominate, but you have two parents who are big people and you're small, and you have three elder brothers who are all older and bigger than you, and all of those people already do the aggressive pattern, and you're four years old, you can't win. It ain't possible. So you probably aren't going to be able to do that one. (laughs) Right. I just really encourage people to check out Stephen's book, The Five Personality Patterns, because he talks about this. It goes into each of these patterns in quite a bit of detail. But something you talk about is there's sort of a 
a traditional expression of the aggressive pattern, and then there's a masked mm-hmm. expression of the aggressive pattern. So I'd just be curious to hear you talk about how how that might happen for people. Because I the reason I'm interested in this is that I think the aggressive pattern is something we see a lot in our culture. And even it's, it even gets expressed online in terms of like online bullying and, and trolling. And I just, I think it's important or it was important for me, I think, to understand how this works. And so I think kind of taking some time with this one in particular might be interesting for people. I think the United States as, as a nation, as a culture, we lean pretty strongly into the aggressive pattern. I mean, we are the only nation in the world that claims the right to just send our Air Force out to bomb the hell out of some other country when we don't like what they're doing. You know, Britain, France, Germany, even Russia and China don't claim that they have the right to just go bomb people. We do. That's pretty much aggressive pattern behavior. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> it know? is. It is, and I think it's it's conflated by a lot of people as as strength. Yes, absolutely. I think we have a very deep misunderstanding of strength and a deep misunderstanding of masculinity. Now, aggressive pattern is the most classically masculine of the patterns. Merging pattern is the most classically feminine of the patterns, but I think that our culture doesn't have a clear understanding of either masculine or feminine energy. We're still a little bit stuck in the John Wayne image of masculinity. We've come out of it some. We've gotten a little more into connection and stuff. I, I ran men's groups for 16 years, but I think we're still really struggling with what is authentic masculinity. And as you said, we get, we have this idea that, you know, if you just stand up and beat the other person physically into submission, that makes you a real man. Right. I don't think that's a very good understanding of masculinity. I certainly don't think so either. I think that has (laughs) created a lot of the challenges that we we see yeah both interpersonally and even how we treat the planet and our environment i think it yeah and you can see different cultures in different nations sort of lean different ways in russia given that they've had the you know the secret police who control everything and the government holds elections but doesn't care who you voted for And, you know, like one of the jokes in Russia is, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Mm. So I think enduring pattern is quite popular in Russia. It's a way to get by when you really can't make a difference. You can't fight back. You can't win. If you look at Holland, very much rigid pattern. Mm. Interesting. You know, it's like we will follow the rules. Like in Holland, you know, the, the prostitution is right out front. It's not shaded away, and the people come out, or they used to, I lived in Europe when I was young, uh, they, they would come out like every morning and wash the stone front stoop, the, the front, the stone uh, at the front door, because you, you know, like everything's got to be clean. Right. Japan also, 
fairly, you know, a lot of rigid pattern in Japan, which has made them terrific at taking technology from elsewhere and perfecting mm. it. That makes sense. Yeah. And here we are in the U.S. being being aggressive. <laughs> and, and which gives us a certain kind of exploration, daring to go into new places, you know, entrepreneurship, flexibility, disregard of the rules. You know, there are strengths and weaknesses in each of these skill sets that are developed for each of the patterns. Well, I like that you call them skill sets. And part of what I appreciate about this, and, you know, most people listening to this know about Norm, and Norm has some similar lineage in terms of character analysis. And I think what's refreshing about it is that it's it's not pathologizing and it's not, I mean, as you said at the beginning, this isn't who you are. This is This is what you do when you're experiencing distress and that these are strategies that have been reinforced by our environment like we don't do them for no reason we do them because on some level they worked yeah and also it sort of leaves this question it's like okay once we recognize that this is a pattern that we're running culturally or individually well, I guess we let's not worry about the culture right now. That's kind of a bigger yeah. problem to solve than we have time for today. But um, if if we're, let's say we're recognizing, okay, like my tendency is to try to merge with people when I'm under stress and try to get them to take care of me. What do we do with that? Yeah. To go back and just finish up a little piece from the how do you, how does the person develop right. yeah. patterns? I just wanted to say that, you can see a kid try out the various safety strategies and then s- stay with the ones that work for them. And a person tends to develop not one, but two safety strategies. This is a different interpretation than you get from the traditional character structure thing. This is an idea that came in through some of the oral teaching that I've had. And to me, it it answers a whole lot of questions about, like, why do you have so much variation within XYZ pattern? So a person's path to getting out of pattern, at least occasionally, temporarily, is, first of all, to learn about the patterns in general. Secondly, to identify which two or possibly three patterns do you individually use. And to try to track down... In what order do you use them? And it's real important when discerning what patterns you do to notice that the patterns are not actually clusters of traits. People often think of them that way because that's the way that most maps of personality are presented, the Myers-Briggs especially. What's important to notice in order to discern what patterns you do is to learn to pay attention to yourself as you shift from completely happy, safe, contented, peaceful, to a little bit upset, a little annoyed, a little irritated, to a little more irritated, a little more upset, getting a little unhappy, <laughs> you know, whether it's anger or fear or sadness or jealousy or shame or joy, no matter what kind of energy it is. As the volume of the energy goes up in your body, what do you do first to try to feel safer? Do you constrict? 
like rigid pattern? Do you go away? Do you go towards? Do you pull in and go down? Do you pull up and out? Just notice. And then there'll probably be a threshold as the volume increases, as the distress increases. You'll hit some threshold where the first method, the primary pattern in my nomenclature, isn't really working, and you switch to a backup. In a person who hasn't done very much inner work, this change can be dramatic. Like if leaving pattern is their primary pattern and then aggressive is their backup, they might be like scared, 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 got to get away, got to get away. You know, I don't want to be here. I don't want, I'm dissociated. I'm not here. And then you hit a threshold and is now it's fight yeah. time. Suddenly they come into their core. They're online. It's confrontive time. Completely different set of behaviors. They change from one pattern to another. When a person has done a lot of inner work, the pattern strategies get more kind of integrated inside, and it's not as clear. Yeah. One thing that's, I think, helpful about learning about these is that it can sort of dial down the shame in the sense that we often think, like, Mm -hmm. I'm so weird, or there's something wrong with me. Like, why do I go from being, you know, quiet to all of a sudden exploding on people? Or why do I... Why do I feel needy or clingy or like we label ourselves with these, with these terms and we like shame ourselves. And I think something about understanding universalness is the wrong word because people have different patterns that they go to, but at least understanding the commonality of some of these patterns can really help us feel like, like we make sense on some level. Like I'm not a mystery. This, this actually has some logic to it. Yeah, one way I've heard it said is that it's like having x-ray vision. Yeah, really feels that way. You can see inside the other person and see what's motivating them, what's going on, and how they're actually trying to feel safer by doing this behavior that you really wish they didn't do. (laughs) (laughs) It's not making you feel safer, but it might be helping them. Or you can apply that to yourself and see what you do inside. And understand, and as you said, that brings more empathy and more compassion. Yeah. More sense of kindness. And and less need to get into a fight about it or make somebody wrong about it, but to understand and empathize. This kind of brings me back to, I don't want to leave plot holes in our podcast because I had asked about the, the masked yeah. aggressive pattern. And the reason I'm interested in this in particular is because it makes me wonder, let's say we have, let's say our like natural impulse would be to move energy up and out. And I'm just using this as an Mm -hmm. example. This could happen with other ones as well, I'm sure. But then that gets thwarted by our environment or it, it wouldn't work in our environment to actually help us feel safe. And so it seems like the only choice in those kinds of situations is to switch to a different pattern, but it sounds like you can also kind of shove the pattern down in a sense. Does is that am I understanding that? Or or try to cover it up. Yeah. Okay. And I wouldn't say cover it up for all of them, but for the aggressive pattern, because our society approves of this for boys and disapproves of it for girls, if you're a girl and your natural tendency is to bring up energy, because you've got a lot of it, 
and to send it out and to be assertive and confrontive and, you know, dominate them. Let's just be clear. I'm going to win, right? And that works with your brothers and sisters, but then you realize socially this is not a good plan. You are paying a heavy price for this. Or maybe in your family you you realize this is not a good plan, that you're paying a heavy price for it. As you said, then there can be a tendency to develop, to disidentify from that feeling and that behavior and to think, well, I don't do that. I don't feel that way. Yeah. I mean, other people do, and I think it's really wrong of them, but I don't have that feeling. And it, it can get covered up. Yeah, I think I'm glad that you brought in the piece about it not being socially supported for women. Cause I think a lot of women oh, yeah. do have a trim and I think men do as well, but I think f- especially women have a lot of disowned anger because it's not socially supported for us to express it. Back in the seventies, when women started getting together in women's groups and talking with each other and sharing and exploring their feelings, the buried feeling, the unexpressed feeling was typically anger. And now anger has a function. It's a separating emotion. It's like, I am not like you. Right. And I do not want to be like you. It's very useful for psychological separation. So in, in women's groups, anger would be the buried emotion that would come up. In men's groups, which started more in the 80s, anger was already out there. Like anger was an approved. Right. Emotion for men, in fact, an awful lot of other emotions were getting expressed as anger because anger was okay and the others weren't. In the men's groups, what would come up is grief and shame and sadness, loneliness, all things which are much more approved for women, but not approved for men to feel. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Something that you said triggered this other thought, which is if anger is a separating emotion, and we live in an aggressive patterned society, it just explains some of the isolation and separation that I think many of us feel within our culture. I think the West in general has gone with the idea of the individual being more important than the group, the collective. And in the United States, we've taken it farther than anyone else. And our founding document is the Declaration of Independence. Not the Declaration of Dependence, not the Declaration of Interdependence, but the Declaration of Independence. I don't need you, screw you! (laughs) Yeah. You know? It's like we were teenagers leaving Great Britain, our parent, and and our way was, you know, like, I hate you, stay out of my room. (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. We were set up from the beginning for some of this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The ways that some of this stuff plays out on a a mass scale is just, it kind of boggles the mind a little bit. But isn't it great that we can see it more clearly? Yeah, it's been interesting. The more, I mean, you talked about x-ray vision. The more I've I've learned about this, the harder it is to turn that off, (laughs) you know? Sometimes it would be nice to turn it off a little bit. I can give you the secret to that. Oh, please do tell. (laughs) Consciously move your attention from your head down to your heart. 
Literally move your attention down to the center of your chest and look out from there. Your heart doesn't put people in categories. Your heart just loves or doesn't, but it doesn't get involved in morality or grading or criticizing or right and wrong. It's just, I want to be closer to that person or that thing, or I want to do that activity. Like, you know, I love playing piano, or I love singing, or I love riding horses. It's just, I love it. It's it's not, you should love it too, or it's the better thing to do. It's just, I love it. So, shift your attention from your head center to your heart center. Completely different center. Head, heart, belly. Three different centers of intelligence. Completely different kinds of intelligence. And from your heart center, it's okay. Yeah, that's so perfect. Because it's true. Like when we're in connection with friends or, you know, I notice when I'm with, with clients, it's, it's not that analytical mind that's showing up. It's the heart that's showing up and the mind is there in service of the heart, but it's a different orientation. Yeah. And that's one of the great teachings of the whole mystical path that the mind should be in service of the heart. It's the heart that is the doorway into the, the field of the divine into the ocean of oneness, not the mind. Well, something I I was going to ask you is, how long ago did you complete this book? It's been a number of years, right? Yeah, I worked on it for about eight years, and I published it five and a half years ago, almost six, August of 2015. And what has shifted for you, if you're willing to share, just having... Mm -hmm gone through the process of synthesizing all of that information and and making it into something cohesive for people. And I'm just, I'm interested to hear how that process was for you and what's sort of happened since then. It was a long process. I did not, at the beginning, I didn't know I was doing it. Toward the end, I began to realize that in the non-physical world, I'm not, I'm not great psychic skill type here. But I began to realize that the field of understanding, of knowledge, of character structure, wanted somebody to put this material out into the physical world. And it didn't have to be me, but I was a pretty good candidate because I had a lot of the skill sets needed. I began to kind of surrender to the idea that I'm being used as a vehicle for this. And that, of course, keeps me humble. Always a good thing. (laughs) Yes. In later editions of the book, like the print-on-demand copies that are being produced now versus the, the offset printed ones that I did at the beginning, the one change I've made is to change the phrase survival strategies to safety strategies. I still use the term survival patterns, but use the term safety strategies to help people get that this idea of leaving or merging or enduring or, you know, trying to dominate or trying to be good, it's, it's all just an attempt to feel safer. And safety is the main thing we want. I've been a psychotherapist for 35, 40 years now, and it's, it seems to me that the, the first thing people want is to feel safe. And 
Coming soon after that is to feel like they belong and they're loved. And that's what we want. And the patterns we develop are just a way to try to deal with feeling unsafe as a kid. And they're the best methods we could come up with. And then they got conditioned into our bodies and became involuntary and automatic. And so we still do them in adulthood, even if this isn't a good choice in this situation. We're kind of prisoners to those things. And that the way to get out of the prison is to recognize the particular patterns you go into, the prisons you live in, and then to learn how to shift yourself out of that. And that means learning particular set of energy skills, which all adults, all functioning healthy adults need to know, but we, our, our society is pretty blind to energy skills, so we don't get taught these generally. Learn the energy skills you need and clear old trauma out of the body. Because the old trauma stuck in the body is what's fueling the going into pattern to try to manage that. Right. Well, and, and the patterns are held in the body as well, which you outline in the book, the ways that that happens. Absolutely. Something that, this is kind of a, a left turn, but I know we talked previously about bringing this into it, but something that gets talked about on social media, well, really two things I see talked about on social media quite often are being an empath and then mm-hmm. being a narcissist. And I'm just curious how or if those fall into this framework. I take it that by being an empath, people mean being able to sense what other people are feeling. Right. That sort of emotional sponge phenomenon. Right. So part of the situation for the first two patterns, leaving and merging pattern, is that the person has not developed an energetic boundary around themselves. And the job of that boundary is to stop other people's energies, other people's ideas and feelings from wandering into your own space, your own bubble, and mucking things up for you. It's sort of like if you don't have a fence around your front yard, you're liable to find other people wandering through your front yard. Then you get confused about what's yours and what's not yours. So not having developed the skill, the energetic skill, known as boundary or edge, is a very important part of that problem of being overwhelmed. Not the problem of sensitivity, but the problem of being overwhelmed by other people's stuff coming into your place. So a person needs to develop edge. They need to develop the skill known as me, not me, Mm. which is hygiene, cleaning out your space. Literally getting other people's junk out of your space. (laughs) Your space should be full of your own life energy, your own thoughts and feelings, not other people. Them, all their stuff about who they want you to be, that's fine for them to want that, but to keep it over there in their body, not in your body. Okay? So that's one piece. I think I disagree with the label that's become quite popular in psychology of so-and-so is a highly sensitive person. I think using that label misleads people. It begins to tell them that, A, they are born this way, and it's the way they are, and they can't change it. 
Yes. Secondly, there's a small implication of somehow I'm better. I'm more sensitive than you are. I think that's a mistake. I think we're all incredibly sensitive. Some people have better filters. Some people's filters are like really overdone. (laughs) You know, you get to the, the last two, you get to aggressive and rigid patterns. The boundary is so strong and so rigid that nothing gets in. And that's not so good at all. I'm glad you said that. Because yeah, empath and HSP, which is like what people often say. Yeah, I think those those labels are misleading. And so I, I appreciate your more nuanced perspective on it. And with the empath thing, we're talking about a capacity to tune in to the inner experience in another person's body to reference their core and know what they are feeling. That's a terrific skill. I think everybody would be more socially skillful the more we have that skill. But you can't just have that skill by itself. You also have to have the skill of referencing your own core, finding out, you know, what do I feel? What do I want? What do I need? If you think of the metaphor of radio stations, if you can't hear your own radio station, you have no idea what music is playing on that, but you're hearing everybody else's radio station loud and clear, the only information you're getting is what do they feel and who do they want me to be? And then you wind up trying to be all things to all people. It's an impossible task. You'll fail. You'll feel bad. You feel like you've failed and you're not good enough, but you're missing a different energy skill known as core. You have to develop the skill of core because core of the body from the top of the head, kind of a straight column down to your perineum, the bottom of your torso, because that's where you are the most you. That's where your answers are. Am I hungry? Am I not hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I not thirsty? Do I want ice cream? Do I want chocolate or vanilla or strawberry? Do I want to take this job? Do I love this person? Do I want to marry this person? The answers to those questions are not in books. <laughs> yeah. Those answers are in your core. And in order to find those answers, you have to develop a felt sense awareness of your own core and then practice referencing that, your own core, to get those answers. Aggressive patterned people people who do the aggressive pattern, have the opposite problem. Very strong skill in referencing their own core, almost zero skill at referencing anybody else. And I see those as the the basic problem is just being really good at one skill and not good at another skill. And you need both. And in fact, there's a third one you need, which is the one rigid pattern is really good at. And that is referencing the standards and rules and, you know, manners and all that good stuff. Because it's good to know that stuff. But if that's the only thing you can reference, you can't reference anybody else's feelings. You can't reference your own feelings, your own core. Then you're trying to live your life according to the rules. And you wind up being kind of dry and rigid. That's, that's why the word rigid is so perfect, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. And that sort of explains, and I I just want to be clear that I, I disagree with a lot of the 
cultural narrative around impasse and narcissists and this sort of trope that mm-hmm. they always end up together in romantic relationships. But what you're saying does sort of illuminate some of the dynamics that could be present where if you're only referencing your own core and you're not good at referencing others, and if you're only good at referencing everyone else's but not your own, then then there is potential. I mean, it's a match made in hell, but yeah, it seems intuitive that that might attract. I don't equate aggressive pattern with being a narcissist. That has been put forward by some writers on character structure, particularly Stephen Johnson. I think it's a mistake. Mm. I think narcissism is a different thing. It's actually a missing parts of the ego structure itself. Borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder are actually deficits in the ego structure. Whereas the five personality patterns, the character structure patterns, are seen mostly in people whose ego structure is good enough. And now we're just dealing with how to feel safer. So that's one separation I want to make. Then we've got the aggressive patterned male, merging patterned female attraction for each other. Well, as we said before, aggressive patterned male is embodying the cultural definition of masculine energy. And in in ways does have permission to run more masculine energy than anyone else. A woman who runs merging pattern has permission to run more feminine energy than anyone else. Now, masculine and feminine energies are polarities, and they do attract each other. There is a big spark. That is where the romantic spark comes from. And I'm talking energies, not male-female bodies here. So, yeah, there is a natural tendency for merging pattern women and aggressive pattern men to get together. And then there is the problem of they don't understand each other at all (laughs) (laughs) and are seeing the world completely differently and don't understand why. But if they both understand this map, they're going to begin to see why, see what's going on. Would you be willing to expand a little bit more on what you were starting to talk about with borderline and narcissism? Oh, yeah. Because I think people will be interested in that. This is actually a question that I hear very often. I just had an email about this yesterday. It seems to me, I mean, the best understanding I have from my training and, and, and what I've learned in psychotherapy is that both narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, and borderline personality disorder, BPD, the problem is that the child came to the rapprochement stage in classical development, the stage of getting off mom's lap, going out into the world, you know, at least the other room, and psychologically separating from mom and creating a strong enough sense of self to be able to tolerate being separate from mom. It's a tremendously important job. You have to separate from mom. And you have to develop a sense of self that will support you without mom's arms around you, without sitting on mom's lap. If you can make it through that stage, you're pretty much good to go for the rest of the developmental cycle. The one caveat being, at the very end, the the inner critic should separate Mm. from the central ego, and in most of us it doesn't. Different story. But for 
NPD and BPD, the the kid doesn't make it through the rapprochement stage. They turn back and they try to go back to the dual unity state that they had with mom before. Though we're we're sort of one person, and I'm like I am you, and you are me, and and you are my support. So if you're gone, I fall apart. Now that's okay in a one year old. It's not so attractive in a forty year old. But it explains why it is that a person who does borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder constantly needs attention and validation and affirmation from other people. They need ego support because without it, their own ego is constantly starting to collapse inward. It's like falling into a black hole. Yeah. And it's a terrible experience. I do not envy anybody that experience. Yeah, I sort of think of it as a cup with a hole in the bottom where in order to stay full, you just have to keep pouring all the time. Exactly. A cup with a hole in the bottom. You can never get full and you can never feel like you're enough. You can never feel safe being separate. Yeah. Just being in the other room. Nobody else is in the house right now. No one is praising me. No one is paying attention to me. You know, I mean, in little kids, we see this natural behavior of, Mom, look at me! You know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to jump across the stream. It's great. It's natural. It's part of development. It's wonderful. It's good that Mom watches and she goes, Good job, Billy! Right? But we got to have a time when you don't need that anymore. Yeah, well, and I guess I want to differentiate for people or distinguish... NPD is sort of on the far end of the spectrum. And then there's like narcissistic traits, which I think our culture is is proliferating. Because as you were talking about that, look at me, I was just thinking of social media, which is... Oh, yeah. Social media is a terrific place. <laughs> it's all that. Exactly. It's all, and I get to be as stupid and cruel as I want. The social rules don't apply. I get to say things to people that I would never say in person. I get to be stupid and petty and prejudiced and mean. Why is that so attractive? Yeah. Is it just a matter of degrees? Like, are these, and I'm not necessarily asking you to answer this, but these are the questions that I have. Is is it that we made it through the rapprochement stage minorly? Mm Mm-hmm unscathed but not completely unscathed because that's sort of what it seems like some of the teaching from the diamond heart school that i thought was really great was they would talk about needing narcissistic support and they were using the term to mean that the average ordinary person everybody any person who is identified with their ego structure as me rather than has shifted into identifying with their essence, with their presence as me. And the ego structure is just the house I live in. You know, sort of like you own a car and you can get into your car and drive your car somewhere and get out. And you can sell your car. You can get a different one. Can't quite do that with ego structure. But if you imagine that you've lived inside your house your whole life and you've never been outside... The first experience of being outside your ego structure is like, for the first time, you go out 
you're standing in the front yard and you look back at the house and you go, my God, look at that. Yeah. I've been living inside that thing my whole life. And I thought it was me. So my point here is all of us who are identified with ego structure, and that's pretty much everybody, <laughs> unless you're in a meditation school and you're doing really deep work, <laughs> where, you know, we're all in this club together. We need narcissistic support of some amount. And then, like you said, there's a spectrum of more and more and more and more until it gets really irritating and finally kind of pathological. But this is why, for instance, if you, if you go to work in an office, uh, you come back from the weekend and it's Monday morning and you see Billy Joe coming down the hall towards you, you are socially obligated to say, good morning, Billy Joe. And if you don't, Billy Joe is going to be mad at you. Why is Billy Joe mad? Billy Joe is mad because she was counting on that little hit of narcissistic support. You see me, you recognize me, you acknowledge me. You see me, therefore I must really exist. Mm. Like one of the ways that we know ourselves is through the eyes of, of others, through the reflections right. of others. And this is why how your parents see you is so important. We as, as kids, we don't know who we really are. We only see the reflections we get from our parents. Yeah, which is why it's so heartbreaking when parents can't see their children in, in loving ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the classic problem of both parents do rigid pattern and are not heart-centered, and their child is heart-centered. Which I think all children are. Initially, absolutely. It's an interesting question of would we all stay that way if we could? I don't know. I have a guess that maybe not, but I don't really know. I, I love the question, though. But certainly up to a certain age, all kids are very tuned to that heart connection. And if mom or dad is really caught in rigid pattern, they have this very stern, strict thing about right and wrong. And if you do the right thing, I love you. But if you do the wrong thing, if you are incorrect, I withdraw my heart connection. And the person caught in rigid pattern doesn't even know they do it. But the person who's heart-centered knows they do it. Not consciously, but they feel that loss. And it's a terrible loss for them, disorganizes them. And then they scramble to try to get it back. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. I just, I mean... For the little child, it's... You've been through this. You identify <laughs> with merging pattern. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, the way Narm talks about it uh, is slightly different, but a lot of similarity with, they call it the attunement survival style. And with the attunement survival style, there's a lot of... That you attune to the other. Right. Yeah, you perceive them, sense them, read them, and shift into their frequency to connect. And disconnect from our own needs. Exactly. Yeah. Because to go to their frequency, to connect with them, you have to disconnect from yourself, especially if really referencing yourself is going to include the knowledge of, I don't like this person, and I don't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm curious, I can't recall, because with 
the way Narm thinks about attunement, there's often a connection to eating disorders, which is no secret that I experienced. And so I'm curious if that's something that you observe with the merging pattern as well. Oh, absolutely. Because merging pattern has a, a positive bias of attention. I love everyone. Love will solve everything. All we need is more love. And what's missing is a recognition that not everything loves me. Some things are enemies. You know, cocaine is not my friend. Secondly, this, this desire for love gets conflated with sweetness. Because, and this is also from the Ridwan school teaching, if you go deep enough into the, the actual sensations of love, the field of love, the experience of love, there literally is a sweetness. And it's a slightly different flavor sweetness, you know, for romantic love or friendship love or love for your child, or, you know, but it, there's always that sweetness. So our bodies at some level, below consciousness mostly, understand I'm looking for that sweetness. I'm looking for that feeling of love, sweetness. And then our bodies get confused and we think, oh, you know, I'm feeling lonely and unloved. What I really need is some cake. Right. You know the old saying, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the way I think about it is it's like the part of us that's hungry cannot be fed by food. Well, the part of us that's hungry for love can't get love by eating right. food. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Food is not what we're hungry for. Precisely, yeah. You can't get an, enough of what you don't really want. If you're really starving for food, you can eat food and get enough, and it's good. Right. But if food isn't really what you want, and you're just substituting it for human connection... Yeah, it's bottomless. Yeah, then it's bottomless. And you're making a mistake of the solution you're applying. It's the wrong tool for the job. The wrong tool for the job. And it becomes an addiction in the sense of that all addictions do is take us away from actually experiencing ourself vividly. They mute our experience of ourself. They cover up our pain. They're painkillers. So if my pain is that I feel lonely, but I eat a cupcake and I can't feel my body anymore at all, <laughs> I don't feel so lonely. Yeah. It's a short-term effective strategy. Yeah. One of the things that I've realized and that I really love is that real self-confidence comes from developing a felt sense of core. Yeah. Because self-confidence is self-confidence. It is that you are actually in touch with yourself, confiding in yourself, understanding the fact of yourself. And with a felt sense of your own core, you can feel into that and you can get a direct experience of, I exist. I am here. I am right here and right now. And I don't have to get so-and-so to say good morning to me to know I exist. Mm -hmm. This is great. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to have an endless supply of self-confidence? Yeah. Well, I think maybe the way, I feel like we could keep talking about this for a really long time. But to kind of bring this, bring this to a, a close here, you've talked about the, the energetic skill of, of core 
and being able to reference our own core. And I know that I sort of hate these types of questions, but I'm going to ask one anyway, (laughs) because I know that the answer is much more complex than like distilling this into a soundbite. But if somebody wants to embark on that journey of, of developing that skill, what would you say to them? Find people or things that can teach you these skills that the, the main, the four initial skills that a person needs are core grounding connection down into the earth, feeling of support from the earth and me, not me. There are some psychic schools that teach this material. Not all of them. Often meditation schools don't teach it. Unfortunately, I have on my website for the book, Website, of course, called the5personalitypatterns.com. There are some um, audio and video teachings to describe each of the skills and then talk a person through it, give them something to listen to to, while they practice. And then there's also the bigger course called How to Create a Self that people can sign up for, which takes, it's, you know, seven weeks long or... Well, it was seven weeks when I taught it live. Now it's on video. So, you know, a person can go through it at any any speed that they want. But it's designed to help a person develop one skill per module and then put those all together into a daily practice. Mm, beautiful. And so there are those beginning four, and then there's filling your space, tying your fibers, which is, you know, bringing your attention back home. So. That's that's one way a person can do that. Great. And I'm, of course, intending to put that material into a book for the future, too. Wonderful. Yeah. So is that where people can find you is the five personality patterns dot com? Yeah, that would be the website for the book and the best place to get in touch with me or see what I'm up to. Well, I will link that in the show notes for sure. And thank you so much for this. This was really a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, Iris. I really appreciate your attention to this and the fact that you already know a lot about these patterns so that we can have a more informed conversation about it. Thank you very much. I definitely recommend everyone read the book. It's super fascinating. And if you've already read about character analysis, like from the NARM perspective, it's just a nice way. It's it's, it's a a different approach. And I think I really appreciated reading it. So I think you will as well. So I'm glad you think that. Yeah, my aim in in writing this book was to make this material available to ordinary people. Because up to that point, it was kind of hidden away in the, the corners of psychology, psychoanalysis, or of psychic healing. Yeah. You know, the the corner where unless you can see auras don't even come in here. Right. <laughs> right. And I wanted yeah. to make it available to average people and teachers and healers everywhere. So that's that's been my goal. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah, I think it's very accessible. So you did a good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. See that? I got a little hit of of ego support there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could provide that for you. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Stephen.